0: Good morning. Good morning. Hope you guys are well. My name is Kyle. I am uh, one of the pastors here, pastor of a community and discipleship. I'm glad that you are with us this morning. Uh, we're going to be looking at the book of Exodus. Uh, we're going to be looking at chapters 7 through 11. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open those up. Um, uh, we are working through the book of Exodus as a church, and we have produce some some writings and some devotionals that you can find online or on Realm. Um, also for not only your own devotional life, but uh, to go through as a family devotional with your kids. And so those are found both on Realm and on our website. But we also offer Exodus journals uh, to journal along through. And so they are journals that have the passage or a chapter, and then right next to it would be a blank page to journal, to write thoughts, to write observations. And so we offer those uh, for $5. And so it's a great investment if you are wanting to follow along as we study the book of Exodus. Um, I would be remiss without saying uh, that for the last two to three times we've come up here, we revisited, revisited that the Chiefs were in the Super Bowl. And so congratulations to the, any Chiefs fans in here. We have a big one in here. Um, and so, but also Purdue beat IU yesterday. And so it's only fitting that we're talking about the plagues when the Chiefs and Purdue beats IU. Um, that is a modern-day plague. So uh, I digress. Um, but we're, I'm excited to talk about what we're talking about today. Exodus has been an incredible, an incredible book as we've seen what God is doing through Moses. Um, When I, me and my wife, we have three sons, five, three, and one. Um, And we lay the the one-year-old down. We give him a bottle. He's pretty easy. But we'll lay the older two down, Elijah and Maddox. And oftentimes, uh, we'll do our devotionals with them. We'll pray with them, and then they get in bed. And my oldest son, when I lay with him, he says the same thing every single time I get in bed with him. And he says, Daddy, tell me a story. And I, it's really hard because I'm not one of those people who can just make something up great right off the, the spot. And so I typically make some ridiculous story that really there's no real resolve in it. And somehow it just ends. And he says, Daddy, that wasn't very good. And I say, well, we're not all Dr. Seuss, son, so let's go to sleep. And But the point is, is that we all desire a great story. Good stories are what we love. It's what we're drawn into a great movie is a great narrative. It's a great story. When you think about the, the story of Exodus, which is a real story, a true story, and it really has everything you want. It has redemption. It has suffering. The people of Israel are in bondage. It has a, a, a great villain in Pharaoh. It has a very unlikely hero in Moses who should have died, all things considered, at a very young age, but is raised by an enemy and then makes a mistake And then flees to Midian. And then has an encounter with God. And then God uses someone like Moses to be the most unlike a hero that Israel has seen up to this point. And even with this guy, he is used by God. He's had an encounter with God. But he is so timid and lacks verbal communication skills to such a degree that he needs his older brother Aaron to come help kind of be his proxy. It is a story like any other has miracles for special effects that really happened. It has everything that you could ever want in a story. It is one of the greatest stories ever told. But we get to a part in this story where God is executing judgment through the plagues. Through We're going to look at the first nine plagues. Chris, next week, will talk about um, the greatest execution of justice in the Passover. But oftentimes when we approach the plagues, they can often feel uh, arbitrary, like they're not connected, that there's really no reason and they can kind of not really seem uh, associated with one another. And so the question is, is, what is God doing through the plagues? Is he flexing muscle? Is he showing off? Is he showing, look at me. You must worship me. Look how strong I am. The answer is no. What God is doing is very calculated. It's very specific. And it's very intentional through each and every single plague. And so it begs the question, what is God doing? And what he is doing is something very remarkable. I'm excited to to study this with you. Um, The purpose of the plagues is not to pull punches. It's not to show off. We're going to see how God's plagues that he executes on the land of Egypt are really a great act of mercy. That he's actually, in fact, doing what we believe the vision of the study of Exodus is, is he's leading us out to draw us in. So... We're going to look at, I've segmented my sermon into three categories, the Lord of the plagues, the Lord of saving power, and the Lord of hearts. Let's pray. Let's stand for the, excuse me, let's stand for the reading of God's word, and then we'll pray. We're not going to read all seven through 11, but we're going to start uh, on chapter nine, verse 13 to the end of nine, and verse 35. So Exodus nine, 13 to 35. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause a very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now, therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter, for every man and beast that is in the field that it is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth, and the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I am my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in the bud. But the wheat and the emmer were not struck down, for they they are late in coming up. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord. And thunder and hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of, the, heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and it did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Let us pray. Holy, sovereign, providential God, you are so powerful. And yet, so gracious and forgiving. We see that in Christ, first and foremost. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it edifies us, how it cuts through bone and marrow and exposes the thoughts and intentions of the human heart. And, and God, um, God, today is not about any of us, but it is about your word, your glory, your name, and that the earth is yours. God, help us for that to be the greatest glory in our life. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone in here who has not trusted in your ultimate exodus, your ultimate saving work in Christ, I pray that they would by repentance and faith. And God, I pray for us as believers, God, that the word would be be seen anew, God, that this would be a glorious truth that we're reading, one that is the greatest glory joy and purpose in our lives. So we ask all this, In the name of Christ, amen. You may be seated. We're following Exodus 7 through 11 just as a reminder. There's a part in Exodus 4 where, um, 3 or 4, can't remember, but where Moses is confronted and he says, who is the Lord? And why should I let his people go? I do not know the Lord. I do not know the Lord of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right here we get a picture of, of, of Pharaoh and really of Egyptian culture where there is no knowledge of Yahweh, right? Chris talked about that Yahweh was not the Lord's title, but it was the Lord's name, which is a very intimate thing. That he did not know him. Pharaoh did not know who God was. Therefore, why should I obey him? What we're gonna see is that God is in the business of showing, continually showing that he and he alone is Lord. And so by some small thinking we can believe that, okay, uh, Egyptian culture was just not a very religious culture. But this is anything but the truth. Um, Many scholars and archaeologists would say that Egyptian culture was fraught with gods, many gods, around 80 to 90 gods that they could worship. And they all had to do with the earth. They all had to do with really three main uh, realities at that time. And they were the River Nile, the earth, and the sky. And so to put it in better words than I could, James Montgomery Boyce gives us a very important bit of information as we're approaching Exodus 7 through 11 in the plagues at large. He says this, In order to understand these plagues, we need to understand that they are directed against the gods and goddesses of Egypt and were intended to show the superiority of the God of Israel to the Egyptian gods. There were about 80 major deities in Egypt, all clustered about three great natural forces of Egyptian life, the Nile River, the land, and the sky. It does not surprise us, therefore, that the plagues God sent against Egypt in this historic battle follow this three-force pattern. The first two plagues were against the gods of the Nile. The next four were against the land gods. The final four plagues were against the gods of the sky, culminating in the death of the firstborn. God is very strategic in what he's doing because what he's doing is not flippant. He's proving that the things that, the gods of this culture are not real. They are like Jeremiah says, they're like a scarecrow in a cucumber field. They're not real. They can do no good. They can do no harm. They're not real. Um, that word plague in Hebrew, it, it, it means, it's a word that uh, has the meaning of a blow, like a punch or a wound. So God is striking down this culture and exposing the idolatry that is there. For instance, the Nile turning to blood. In Exodus 7, you're going to see in the beginning, there's actually a couple different times where God tells Moses to meet Pharaoh at the Nile in the morning. Why? Why is that significant? Or is that just some, uh, another sentence to read over? No, why it's significant is that most scholars would say that Pharaoh is going down to sacrifice to the false god of the Nile. He, there were a couple of different gods that he could have been sacrificing to, such as Hopi and Canum. But what we see is that Pharaoh is an idolater. He's worshiping false gods. And so to take the Nile River is, is a very interesting thing. Um, for one, I believe it flows north. Up, it goes north, which most rivers don't flow that way. But at this time, it was, a, it was one of the—it was not— a economic factor it was the economic factor you shipped goods through there you had goddess gods and goddesses that revolved around the nile um, it was it was the economic factor and so for god to take the nile and to turn it into blood what he's doing is saying you're worshiping something that's false one commentator says this with one single blow he gave them a water and a food shortage a transportation shutdown and a financial disaster and a spiritual crisis. With frogs, there were many other, there were many gods that were, <clears throat> that had different shapes. And, and, and there was one god named Heket, who was the goddess of fertility. And her body was shaped uh, like a frog's body. And so for what God is doing, many commentators say that to, to allow frogs, to even encroach upon Pharaoh, is kind of comical. Because even Pharaoh can't get these nuisances out of his court, and yet he can't kill them because it is sacrilegious to kill something that is in the shape of a god or goddess. Uh, Gnats, flies, right? Um, Death of livestock. Livestock is very interesting. The word uh, Memphis, Tennessee is actually not, that name is not just comes out of nowhere. It's actually named after Memphis in Egypt. And Memphis In Memphis, there was a tomb or an altar, a temple um, that had the god of uh, Apis, which was a bull god of fertility. It was in the shape of a bull. And they even had this bull that they worshiped. And when he died, they would actually mummify him. You see, what we're seeing here is that uh, Romans 1, worshiping creation over creator. It's not the fact that they do worship. Our hearts and humanity longs to worship. The question is, what are we worshiping? And right here, we're seeing that we are worshiping false gods. boils. Egyptians were, disease at this time probably would have run often throughout culture. They had a high interest in medicine, such as Thoth or Imhotep or Amon re All these gods were healing gods. They were, yet they are powerless before the God of the Hebrews. Hail, which comes down, is defying one of their deities who is over the sky. Locusts, there he is defying the god of Anubis or Senehim or Taharka. All these gods were, are, were gods that they worship and sacrifice things to to protect their fields from pestilence and bugs. What he's showing is that these are useless. They're powerless. I am over all of creation. The god of the Hebrews is over all of creation. I am sovereign over all. Even the earth and the fullness thereof is the Lord's. That is what He is proving. But the last one that we're going to look at, darkness, which happens in Exodus 10. God is specifically defying the God of Ra. In this time, Pharaoh was not only ruler and king over all at this time, but he was also viewed as the son of Ra. So he himself was deity. So not only would they sacrifice to Ra, but they believed that he was a descendant of Ra and therefore he is deity. He is in charge of when the sun comes up, when it comes down. Pharaoh rules over all. We must worship him. And so for darkness to come that's so dark that you can't see your hand and you can't even move, what's God doing? Pharaoh is not Lord. I am. That's what God is saying. God is in the business of proving his superiority Over Pharaoh. And all of this happens in a span of 20 days. In 20 days, the entire social, political, economic, and religious economy is in ruin, destroyed, laid bare, shown to be powerless. What we see is that God's judgment upon worshiping false gods is very real. And over and over and over is God showing to Pharaoh, you have an opportunity to repent. I'm proving to you over and over and over again that you and the gods that you worship are not real. I am. I am. I made the world. I made human hearts. I made everything that you see. The earth is the Lord's, and so are you. We see that God, in James 4, that God opposes the proud but gives grace to what? The humble. See, the battleground for Israel is not necessarily specifically on the soil of Egypt. It's in the heart of a man. It's in the heart of Pharaoh. And the battleground for eternity is not in action solely, but it's primarily in our hearts as well. There's one verse that, there's one maxim that I heard says, the heart of the matter is always a matter of the heart. Where is your heart? What does it love? You see, the misnomer that we can say is these primitive people, Look what they worship. How could they worship something so foolish? We're modern people. We would never worship something like that. That is the difficulty for us today. I've never seen someone we may, I've never seen someone worship the Nile, I'll be honest with you. I've never seen someone worship the Nile or the sun god or the heavens. But there is something that we believe in our modern day culture and in the heart of man that we believe if we sacrifice enough to it, it will give us what will make us happy. It will give us what we've always wanted it will give us satisfaction. There's something that we go to for significance and joy and purpose. Where they had Osiris, the god of the Nile, we may have Nasdaq or the Tao. And this time where they may have the god of fertility and sexual pleasure, we may not worship those gods like Apis, but we worship sexual pleasure and it's made manifest in things like pornography and sex addiction and things like this. Our, our culture is just as fraught with idolatry. Let's not, let's not be naive about this. Idolatry, and the, the sad reality is that idolatry is uh, taking something that could be very good and exalting it to godlike status where until I have this, only when I have this can I be truly happy. Can I be truly made right? Can I find my purpose? One of the early patristic fathers said this, what each one honors before all else But before all things he admires and loves, this for him is God. For believers, we must ask, what competes for our affections for Christ? What is in competition for our love for Christ? One of the the passages that often moves me to emotion more than any other is in Mark 10, where Jesus encounters the rich young ruler and he meets with him and he says, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus says, Obey the law, the Ten Commandments. Do not steal, do not covet. And he says, I've done these things. And Jesus says, Well, you lack one thing? Go sell all you have and give to the poor, all your possessions, and come follow me. And what does it say? It says that Jesus looked at him, even before that, and loved him. But that he walked away sad, he had great possessions. Think about that for a minute. Because what God did is He put His thumb on the very heart, the very idol, the very thing that this man looked to for significance and joy and pleasure and for an identity. And He can't give it up. Yet here is His God right in front of His face saying, Give it up. Everything that you look for is actually found in me, it's in a relationship with me. But His functional God is not in the law, it's not in Jesus, it's in His hands, it's in His possessions and he can't give it up. So sad. Here's everything that the man could ever want in his life in a person. And isn't that so true that most things that vie for our affections as a believer are ultimately what we're looking for in them is found in Jesus Christ. He is the real God. This man, this rich young ruler, rather have his riches than the Lord who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He'd rather have creation over creator. He'd rather have materialism over mercy. This is why Augustine says that our hearts are restless until we find rest in thee. The question we must ask is, will we bow to false gods like like in Egyptian culture? Will we see them as they are, as false, as idols? Or do we see the false gods, the idols of our day, whether they be money or image or reputation or my job or my children or my body or my mind or control over my life, my hopes, my dreams, whatever it would be, we would bow to them in our hearts more than Christ, more than God. It's not that those things are wrong in and of themselves. It's the propensity for the human heart to make them God in our life, to make them what we must have. But the gospel is the, is the good news that Christ has come to be what our hearts look for to be what our hearts need. That's why in the hymn that we sang last week, it says this, "'Tis that look that melted Peter, "'Tis that face that Stephen saw, "'Tis that heart that wept with Mary "'can alone from idols draw. "'Only the Lord can expose the gods of the day to Egypt, "'and only the, only expose, "'He alone can only expose the idols in our hearts.'" We see that through the plagues that He is the Lord that the Lord is the Lord of the plagues. These aren't just simply natural, but that the Lord is sovereign over nature. The second thing we realize is that the Lord has saving power, that he is the Lord of saving power. What God is displaying continually is that I am Lord and that you and I and Pharaoh are not. Look at 7 verse 17. He says a phrase, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Or in chapter 8 verse 22, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Or in verse 9, 16. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all of the earth. We see God's saving power for Israel and also for Egyptians. What the plagues are showing is that he's not just the Lord of those who believe in him. But he's also the Lord of everything and everyone. And he has a heart not only for Israel to be out of bondage, but even for Egyptians through the miracle that he's going to do for people who do not worship God, for them to finally realize the God of the universe, that he is the Lord of the Hebrews. In verse nine twenty, Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock into the field. One thing that we notice in this verse in 920 is how Christians approach the word of the Lord. That when it comes to the word of God, it's to be obeyed, it's to be submitted to. That we don't approach God's word and say, well, it meant this at this time, but it doesn't mean that today. It can't mean that today. We're in a modern culture. It can't mean this today. It can't mean that now, right? We don't say, well, God surely couldn't have meant this. This is the temptation when we approach God's word, but God gives a clear warning in Exodus 9 for the hail. He says, obey me and you will be spared from wrath. Obey me and the hail won't come upon you. A Christian is Someone who doesn't look around the Bible, doesn't look through the Bible? Well, it can't mean that. I I couldn't, when it says, um, deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow me, surely that can't mean such and such. They don't look over the Bible. A Christian is someone who when it approaches, when it comes to approaching God's word, they submit to the Bible. That the word of God stands over them. It is to be loved and enjoyed and to be obeyed. Have you ever looked at Psalm 1, 1 through 3? It's quite an interesting verse. It says this, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, who meditates on his law day and night. That person, that person, is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. And whatever they do, Prosperous, R.C. Sproul, who passed away two years ago, has an interesting take on this verse because he says, notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that a person who, right, who um, who is blessed is someone who is in church or who is around Christian friends or is around Christian things or is in a Bible study. No, someone who is blessed, who is a Christian, who is Is someone who looks at God's word and says, I love the fact of your authority in my life. I love that when it comes to your word, you have all authority to cross me. That your word is authoritative in my life. You tell me to do this, and I submit. And you tell me not to do this, and I submit. A Christian is someone who doesn't look around, above, under, but stands underneath The word of God. And it's his delight to do so. Begs the question: is this our delight? You that you can say to God's word that I love your word. I love it. It is sweeter than honey, as Psalms say. Or is God's word a burden? Not that it isn't hard, not that it isn't that we wrestle with sin, but do we approach the Bible and say, God, you are good. All you do is good, that your steadfast love of the Lord, it lasts for my entire life, as we just sang. Second thing we see see is that his saving power is showed to God's people. Have you ever noticed that the more severe these plagues become, the more God shows mercy and provision for Israel? Notice that when the, when the the flies came. When he sent flies, he says, I will set apart my people in Goshen and no flies came. When it came to the livestock, only the livestock of of Israel versus Egypt was spared. When it came to hail, it's those that feared and obeyed the Lord that the hail did not come. And ultimately in the night plague, when darkness was so dark, it was only in Goshen where God's people were that they had light. This is a reminder for us that God's kindness is displayed to his people in the midst of judgment to those who aren't his people. He says that oftentimes uses a phrase that I will make a distinction. Well, what is the distinction? This distinction is God's people, the people of Israel. And this is a reality for us that the safest place as Christians is to be inside and with the people of God, to be inside the church, that God carves out his people. He shows a grace greater than they deserve. That if you're a Christian in here, think about this, that you woke up today under grace and not under wrath. Um, do you know that in Ephesians 5, where he gives the analogy, Paul, that God interacts with his bride the way a husband interacts with his wife, that he actually says that God does everything, everything for the bride's good. That means that in your life, he's doing a million different things, some of which are so hard, but that he's working for your good. That is a beautiful promise that we have in Romans 8, 28 and 29. Everything, can it really be everything in my life is working for good? Yes. Yes. Why? Because God's word says it's true. Everything in your life, God is working for good. Even if we are in seasons of suffering, that God oftentimes in suffering has our good in mind, but also the good of his glory. Right? During this time, Israel is still in bondage, Israel is still suffering. But what is he doing? He's proving that he is Lord. Can we say that in times of suffering in our life? God, you haven't delivered me yet. Wait upon the Lord. He's doing something in your life. And although you may not see it now, you will see it soon. God's saving power is also displayed over and above Pharaoh. Look at verse 9, chapter 9, sorry, verse 14 through 16. For this time, I will send all of my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people why? So that you may know that there is none like me in all of the earth. For by now I could have put, all, put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, Pharaoh, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all of the earth. Again, what, what is God doing I am the Lord and you are not Pharaoh. There's one person in charge. Any of you Lord of the Rings fans in here? We're, we're going to nerd out real hard right now. There's a part where Gandalf is in Isengard. And, uh, and he catches that lo- or that moth and he starts whispering some wizard language. And he tosses it up. And Saruman is using his cane and he flips Gandalf on his back and about to basically destroy Gandalf. And he says, submit to the ring. And what does Gandalf say? There is only one Lord of the ring and he does not share power. And then Gandalf flies off onto the eagle. <laughs> That's great. That won't happen for you and I probably. Um, A true, and, a true and better eagle, Christ. Um, God is proving over and over again that he is Lord. There's one part in Exodus 10 where his people says, what are you doing? Can't you see that Egypt is in ruin? Clearly, this is the God of the universe, the God of the Hebrews. But why can't Pharaoh let him go? Pride. Every time, every plague is an opportunity to repent and trust in Yahweh. It's so obvious, even to Pharaoh's servants, yet Pharaoh cannot. And isn't this the pattern of the human heart and pride and exaltation? Human pride and exaltation in order to be like God, that we would put ourselves before God. He even says this, yet you are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. And then what happens? God gives them a mighty plague, a mighty wound that either humbles or hardens. That is the purpose of the plagues. It will either humble you or it will either harden you. For some Egyptians, it humbles them and they trust in Yahweh. But for Pharaoh, it hardens. Yet, the pattern that God has for all Christians is not exaltation before humility, which is what Pharaoh would say, but in James 4:10 it says, "Humble' yoursh- humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you." The Exodus is all about Lord- God's lordship. Who is really Lord of everything, everything that you see? The question is, have you submitted to that lordship? If you're in here and you're not a Christian, have you surrendered your life to Christ? Charles Spurgeon, when he was preaching over the plague, said this. Forget Pharaoh, and only think of yourself. Let the Lord Jesus Christ himself, with a thorn-crowned head and pierced hand, stand by your pew, looking right down into your soul, saying his matchless tone of music, the music of the heart of love. How long wilt thou refuse to humble thyself before me? One thing that we see also in the plagues is that God is in the business of producing right worshipers, right worshipers, We often view Moses saying, Let my people go. We've seen that kind of in a Sunday school class. I can remember hearing that. Moses says, What? Let my people go. But he says something more than that. That's not the end of the sentence because the end of the sentence is, So that they may serve me or that they may worship me or that they may know me and know that I am the Lord of all of the earth. Let my people go in order to what? To worship me. He's giving Israel a testimony. Isn't that unique? Why does God want children to, and, and women and all of the nation of Israel, both men, women, children, and livestock, to go out into Goshen to worship the Lord? Why? It's not just because he's showing that he is Lord. And it's not just that family, that worship is a family thing that God intends for worship to not just be in church, but to be in our households for our children to know what God has done in our personal lives. But that, that Israelites grandchildren and their grandchildren and their grandchildren and their grandchildren would know the mighty acts of what God has done. And we know that this is true because every single time that you see Israel Go on from here. When they sing about the Lord, they're talking about the reasons that they have to sing about the Lord. They're talking about what God has done. God's giving reason after reason to Israel to worship Him. When they break, break out in song, it's always the reasons God has given them. The reason we're here is because you split the Red Sea. The reason why we're here is because you drowned Pharaoh and his chariots. The reason is because you lead us out of bondage and to the promised land. It's because God, you have given us your law at Sinai. The reason Israel is here is because, and we're alive, is because although we wandered for 40 years, we still had clothes. The reason why Israel is here is because even though we had no food, you rained bread down from heaven. The, the reason Israel is always singing is because God is so good and does, gives them reason after reason after reason that we're here. And believer, if you are here, If you are a Christian, if you are reconciled to this God, it's not because you are in church or because we are around Christian things and Christian friends. The reason why you are here, if you are a Christian, is because God, just like to Israel, has gone before you in the personal work of Jesus Christ, that he has done what you could not do and atoned for your sin on the cross, and that he has loved you. That's the reason why you and I are here. That's the reason why all of us, if you are a Christian, that you are a Christian. And that's why Paul says in Romans 9, therefore it does not depend on human will or exertion, but it depends on what? God who has mercy. That is why you and I are here. The reason why you and I are here, if we are Christians, is because of the gospel. If you're having a hard time in your Christian life, connecting with God in your devotional life, connecting with God in prayer. One of the best things that I have ever done is to literally, in my journal, recount all of the ways God has worked in my life that are unexplainable outside of the work of God. Things that nobody knew that I prayed for and needed that God answered. If you're having a hard time connecting with God, that would be my encouragement as a believer to literally recount all the ways of his faithfulness to you, how he's provided food and shelter, but ultimately how he's changed your life in Christ, how you are not the same person that you used to be, that through Christ, he has changed you, that you are like 2 Corinthians five seventeen says, a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. Now you say, but yeah, you know, I'm, I'm in a real low point in my walk with Christ, I would encourage you just to think about where you are now versus where you were before you trusted Christ. John Newton, one of my heroes who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, was asked about his walk one time and the disappointments and frustrations that do come in the Christian life. And he says, you know, honestly, I'm not where I want to be in my Christian life. And frankly, as a pastor, I'm probably not where I should be, but I'm not who I used to be. Isn't that, isn't that the, one of the most greatest reasons why we have to glorify and to rejoice in who and what God has done in our life? We are not who we used to be. Lastly, We see that he is the Lord of the plagues, that he is the Lord of saving power as he's taking Israel out of Egypt. But ultimately, why? What's the point? And I would submit to you that he is the Lord of hearts. The point of the plagues is what we're talking about, intimacy. He is in the business of leading us out to draw us in to intimacy with Christ. The Exodus is not simply about being free just to be free for Israel, but being free to have intimacy with someone, to worship rightly, to know God, to love and enjoy him. Has this, again, has it changed your life? Are you a new person by encountering, this, by encountering Jesus Christ, the same God who threw and gave the plagues and leads Israel out of Egypt? You will be changed. The old analogy that I heard as a college student of of being changed by Christ goes like this. If I were late coming into here, you say, Kyle, well, why are you late? I'll say, you know, it was crazy. As I was coming here, I got hit by a Mack truck. That would be crazy. Because if I got hit by a Mack truck, I would be entirely different. I would be very different on the road. Why? Because a Mack truck is infinitely greater than I am. But to say that you and I have had an encounter with God who is infinitely greater than a Mack truck, yet our lives are not changed supernaturally, what is the only evidence and conclusion that we can draw? We're lying. To encounter a holy God who not only leads his people out of Egypt and delivers plagues and sends his son to be the atonement for our sin, the only thing that happens when we encounter him in a relationship in the gospel is that we are changed. N.T. Wright puts it like this. How can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, that the fire has become flesh, that life itself came to life and walked in our midst? Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It, e- it is either the, most de- the more devastating disclosure of the deepest reality in the world, or it's a sham, a nonsense, a bit, a bit of deceitful play acting. Most of us, unable to cope with the saying either of those things, condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world In between. This is a call not to live in the shallow world in between. But if you are not in Christ, if you don't know where you are spiritually, to come to Him. We also see by Pharaoh in this passage, especially in Exodus 9, we see Pharaoh attempts to get to repentance, but eventually always hardens his heart, or God hardens his heart. Yes, of course, he feels bad, of course, he displays emotion. Like verse 9, 27, he even says, God's in the right, and me and my people are in the wrong. But repentance is a 180-degree turn where you're going one way, and by God's grace, you're going the opposite way. Often, most commentators say what Pharaoh does is have a full 360-degree turn. He just goes right back to where he is, hardened. Repentance is a full submission, and you notice how Pharaoh does ne- never fully submits. He says, when Moses says, you need to let our people go. He says, well, you can go, you, you can go, but you still have to stay in my land. And then it's, well, you can go out of my land, but can it, only, it can only be the men. And then it's, well, you can go out of my land and it can be the women and, and, and men, but not the children. And then it's the men and the women and children, but it's not your livestock. And then when Moses says, everyone, even the livestock, so that we can offer sacrifices, he says, no. What's the point? Pharaoh <laughs> never gets to repentance because he never surrenders all. He never surrenders all. This is false repentance. This is playing the if game with God. God, I'll follow you if you give me this. It's making stipulations in the contract. But true repentance isn't bargaining. It's not bartering with God or bargaining or saying I'll follow you if. There are really two scenarios that we can as humanity when we approach God in repentance. Either it is by my sinful state, condemned in wrath, or full submission to Christ and I become his adopted son or daughter and the full affections that he had on Jesus now become mine worship of false gods involves bartering I'll sacrifice something in order to get something it's an exchange but the true God the God of the Bible has none of that I don't want a sacrifice I want it all I want your life I want your heart I want you Psalm 51 16 through 17 says you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Why? Because he loves you. He loves you. I love you so much that I sent my son, the second person of the Trinity, who would take on the true curse, the true darkness, which also happened not only when he was crucified, but he went down into the tomb in darkness and then three days later rose triumphing over sin and death so that you and I could have a light in darkness and be a light in darkness, to be missional. Again, Jesus spoke to them in John 8, 12, says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The way one escapes judgment of God is not running away from God or bartering with God, but to run to him in utter dependence. Lastly, let me close with this. If you're a Christian in here, you have an access to intimacy with God. And the question is, Is are we pursuing that as a church? Do you believe that God really does delight to meet with you? Do you believe as a Christian that God really does love you? That he really does delight in you? Sometimes we believe that God is angry or disgusted or, or, or mildly just wants you to get away from him in your sin as a Christian. And that is the furthest thing from the truth. Because actually, like Ed Welch would say, God is the God who is continually doing this to us. Come closer. Come here. Come closer. Do you want to change in your Christian life? Come closer. Do you want to be a Christian? Come closer. Um how often we need to be reminded that God is doing that to us as Christians every day. That He is in the business not of pushing us away, but of saying, Come closer, meet with me. Do you want to change? Meet with me. Elijah and I pray uh, with people who pray for a church service, and he said something that was very powerful. He's five years old, and he just said this Eli, he, Eli said, God, thank you that. You like us. How much you and I need to know that. One of my favorite hymns starts a stanza says this. Those he saves are his delight. Christ will hold me fast. God is always calling us to come closer. Draw near to God in what he will draw near to you. I was in a wedding yesterday yesterday. Revelation 21, three was read, behold, the dwelling place of God is with who? With man, not just in the new heavens and new earth, but God has given us the Holy Spirit so that we may have communion with him. If salvation is not running away from God, but running to him, how much more does God delight for his children to run to him. Let it not be said of us as Christians that the reason you and I did not experience intimacy with God is because you believed he didn't want it with you, or that he doesn't initiate it with you first. We need only look to the Exodus and the Exodus in and through Christ for that thought to be corrected. Well, before we pray, we're gonna or before we pray, we're gonna take the Lord's Supper. This is a meal that's offered to Christians. We offer bread and wine and juice. The wine is in the cup marked with twine. We encourage you to take as your conscience leads you. This is a meal, again, that's reserved for Christians. If you're not a Christian, that this is an opportunity to take Christ by faith. This is an opportunity to really trust in the Lord of the plagues, the Lord of the Exodus, the Lord that's displayed in the person and work of Christ and the love of Christ. If you'd like to pray about what does it mean to be a Christian or to become a Christian, there'll be prayer responders and pastors in the back who would love to meet with you and love to pray with you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your work in the plagues, which God, give us a vision of of your intimacy, your holiness. God, you as judge, and that God, that you love your people, Israel, and that you love us today. God, help us to to remember that. God, help us to, to treasure your word, to submit to your word. Help us to see that you're not only the Lord of the plagues, that you're not only save Israel and us, but that you desire to meet with us. God, help us to be in your word. God, if there's anything that did not honor you, God, would you blot it out from my mind and everyone in here's mind. God, we love you. Help us to love you more. Help us to treasure you in the gospel. We ask this in Christ's name, amen.